1: Hi everybody, and welcome to another week of the Talking Biotech podcast. This week, we're going to talk about consumer sentiment. What do consumers think of new technologies? And really, why does it matter? We're speaking with Dr. Brandon McFadden. He's an associate professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Applied Economics and Statistics. So welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, it's no surprise you and I Kind of go back a little ways. I used to be a faculty where I was and, or yeah, I guess, what? <laughs> I guess I am. We've worked on a couple of projects together. So this is kind of the residues of that. And, but tell me a little bit about what an ag economist does.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, and, and let me, let me say too on that, Kevin, I think I met you my first semester at UF and, and, and let me say it was actually pretty nice of you because I was, I was a very junior fresh person and you took time to meet with me. I think my first semester there to talk a little bit. So yeah, we have, uh, we've known each other for a while, but uh, but so what, you know, the, the area of, of ag econ is very broad. So people study, you know, everything from, you know, rural development, right? Like comu- community development. To you know, production and and I focus more on consumers, so I, I do a lot of consumer research, food labeling, food retailing, things like that. Okay, yeah. So that it's always been kind of, I guess you
1: would say, kind of a mystery to most people. Like, what does an egg economist do? And and you know, I've seen everything from you know, tell you predict the price of milk to describe the cost of healthcare in rural communities. You know, so when you say broad, pretty broad.
2: One kind of unknown fact is actually like the undergrad degree in ag econ has one of the lowest unemployment rates because of that breadth, right? Even as an undergrad with with that type of training, you can do anything, you know, from selling fertilizer, right, to being a a data analyst for a food company, right? So yeah, it's it's broad.
1: Well, one of the things that brought us together was kind of a mutual interest in the science around genetic engineering and me being a a molecular biologist and you being an expert in economics kind of made a pretty good team for answering a lot of weird questions and one of the questions we started to think about a few years ago was around this issue of gene editing and so could you tell us a little bit about gene editing what is this gene editing thing and why is it important
2: yeah so Gene editing allows scientists, researchers, it gives them the ability to make very targeted changes to the DNA of living organisms. And, and, you know, when we first kind of got together and started talking, you know, it was more around GMOs, right? And so this has kind of been the progression of the, you know, tech, technological change. And so a, a technology that's, you know, now more precise than, than GMOs. And so, you know, we had done a lot of work looking at you know people's perceptions, concerns about GMOs. And so naturally this is now transitioning into research about attitudes, perceptions towards gene editing. So when you say GMOs,
1: you're really referring to transgenic technology, right? So this other way of genetic engineering as it, so let's just clear up the nomenclature. Gene editing is genetic engineering, as is this transgenic thing, but why is one better than the other? You've kind of mentioned it, but maybe tap into that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, well, so the way the changes uh, with GMOs were made, like this term using in transgenesis, is, you know, there, there was also the, the, the foreign DNA had to be inserted in, in a different technique that often included, you know, so it would include something like using agrobacterium to, 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 put the foreign DNA in and that's no longer needed. You can just make direct changes to the DNA with gene editing. Yeah. So you can
1: make changes without any extra baggage. You're basically, right. Yeah. You're, you are creating changes in DNA that could have been installed with traditional breeding. Just instead of taking five years, 10 years, 50 years, a hundred years, it can be
2: done in a year or two. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think another kind of Added benefit is been and, and and maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. You can you can correct me, but the ability to you know along with the gene editing, uh, you know where it's has been the ability to sequence genomes, right? And right, all, all the information that we're be able to gather now,
1: right? So since we have so much genome sequence, we can identify subtle changes in between two different genomes that maybe show variation that would have taken a long time to find in other ways. So maybe a disrupted gene that causes you to be susceptible to a disease in uh, one species or one variety that is intact in the other. And now we can recreate that same gene variant in something susceptible that is present in something that is resistant. And then this way confer resistance without chemistry, which most people are really excited about. So I guess the other uh, big question then. So we, we have this new technology. What about the regulatory differences? Is it a big difference between gene editing and old school transgenics?
2: Well, so I, I would say yes and no, and there's still a lot of gray area in the sense that, for instance, like with even let's say a uh, label, right? So for instance, how labeling would be regulated. It's not completely clear. You know that we we now have the national bioengineered food disclosure standard, which went into effect January 1 of this year. So you might see more labels on foods, um, saying that the food has bioengineered ingredients or ingredients from GMOs. The labels are now mandatory for food manufacturers over a certain size. So a lot of things in the grocery store, particularly like packaged foods will now carry that label. So for instance, with that regulation, the wording isn't always clear about where gene editing will fall. It kind of, in, in my mind, you know, I, obviously I'm not an attorney. So, I, I, you know, I read, you know, policy documents and regulations and, and glean what I can. And what I can glean is that the language, for instance, on that is 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 soft enough where it could kind of go either way. It's kind of a, de- it depends type of language. And so, you know. I guess it's not completely clear. So the the first or one of the first things that popped up was a mushroom that was gene edited that wouldn't brown. So like the white cap mushrooms. And at the time, USDA said that they would not regulate that any differently than something bred through conventional standards because there had been no foreign DNA introduced. And it was something that could, you know, happen over time, you know, theoretically it could occur and, you know, through conventional breeding. So all that to say is at least from the things I've seen and read, it's not it's not clear.
1: Yeah, that's really the big difference, right? You have this regulatory difference and, and that labeling thing, that bioengineered act for all the hassle and fanfare that got back in twenty what, sixteen or whenever it passed, seventeen, that sure came and went without any real interest. I mean, it it happened and you never heard anything about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we, you know, there were, there were discussions. So to give you some background, you know, things like public surveys, public polling found, you know, that by and large, a lot of people wanted food, right? If you just ask them, do you, should food that contains GMO ingredients be labeled? A high proportion of the population says yes, like, you know, close to 90%. And, you know, so a lot of this was used to motivate the need for some kind of regulation, you know, to disclose to consumers that the food was genetically modified or it had genetically modified ingredients. And, and then, yeah, so it got passed and of course advocates for the mandatory label were happy it got passed. And one reason it got passed at the federal level too, to give you even a little bit more background, is that it had passed and there were, there had been a lot of state initiatives and state level voting occurring up to this. And it had actually went into effect in Vermont for just a short period of time. And then you know a bit of speculation but what it seems like is that the federal government realized that you know a lot of states are trying to pass these types of laws and you know for a food manufacturer or just you know our our food system in general it's very difficult if every state has different laws and so you know rather than having kind of this patchwork regulation where every state has a little bit of a different type of standard you know uh, so it was you know an idea to get everything on the same standard and so advocates were uh, for mandatory labeling were happy You know, I I think that was definitely a win for them right when it got labeled, but then they weren't very happy with some of the disclosure options, which were things like a QR code. That was kind of the first thing they weren't happy about. You can also disclose with text or a symbol or a web, a web address. But like that symbol hadn't been identified yet when the policy was first, when it, when it first passed, they said, we're going to allow a symbol, but it hadn't been developed. It has since been developed when it was, when that symbol came out. Advocates for mandatory labeling also weren't happy with that because they thought it was, you know, I guess too appealing and, and, there were <laughs> and, uh, and allowed and allowed uh, food manufacturers to use the word bioengineered rather than genetically modified. And so advocates for mandatory labeling were also not happy about that. So, so all that to say there was a little, you know, there, there was definitely some conversations and, and points raised while it was, you know, going, while, while it was becoming established. But as far as consumers or the public know, you don't really hear much about it.
1: Yeah, well, it still is a lot of noise being made about it. I know the Center for Food Safety is still going to court and still suing the government over those labels. They want a skull and crossbones on the food, right? And not this uh, bioengineered, you know, waterfall with a tulip and a flying bird, (laughs) right? Which you know, which is really—I mean, it is just shows what a crazy distortion this is. Right. So th- we're going through all these machinations. We have labeling. We have, is this something that's extraordinarily unusual? I don't know that the government knows. I don't know that that scientists know. And we sure don't know what consumers think. And so that's the stepping off point for this work. And so why do we even care
2: what a consumer thinks about a technology in food? Yeah, so that's a great question. and And it's, to be honest, something even myself, you know, that I struggle with as a researcher, you know, because obviously as a researcher, I'm not, I'm not trying to necessarily advocate for anything, but when I look at the evidence, for instance, with genetically modified foods or, you know, there's overwhelming evidence that it's safe. And, you know, this is really what got me into this area. Originally, when I was a PhD student and in my dissertation, I, I did one of, one of my chapters in my dissertation was a paper on perceptions of human actions and, and climate change, and then the safety of GMOs, because I've always kind of been interested in this inconsistent thinking, right? And we see a lot of scientific evidence, right, to show that human actions are causing climate change, and and there's a lot of people that accept that, right? They accept that scientific evidence, and they say, okay, I'm going to change my behavior, or, or you know, I be- at least uh, believe what the the evidence is showing. We you know we have similar evidence for the safety of GMOs, but the breakdown of society who thinks the GMOs are safe is a lot lower than the, you know, the proportion of society who thinks that human actions are causing climate change. And so we provided people with information to see like what that did to the release, but all that to say, why we should, so why should we believe or uh, be concerned about what people think about this technology in food is one, you know, we want to, in general, my research area what i'm interested in are things like perceived risk and actual risk and the differences between those and things that lead to people either you know not prioritizing some risk or being too concerned about risk they shouldn't be concerned about but so you know that's kind of just on the behavioral front as far as like a food for production front you know obviously if if there's high aversion to a technology that increases production And then so that takes, you know, it it effectively takes that technology out of the hand of producers because consumers are so averse and then they can't grow these types of crops or what have you, then it can affect things like the supply of food, the prices of food for a lot of people. And particularly for people who might not care so much about GMOs and have less disposable income to spend on food, right? It also raises the food prices for those people. So... There are, there, you know, so there's a lot of layers on why, and it just kind of depends on how you want to think about it or, you know, what the research question is as to specifically what, you know, why we should be concerned or what the motivation is kind of topic driven. Sorry if I, I, I talked in circles there a little bit at the end, but, but all that to say, there are several reasons in my mind why somebody might be concerned or be interested in researching consumer concern of a food technology.
1: I I think it's fascinating because I think consumers are nuts in a lot of ways. They're, and I don't understand this part, that you can give consumers a new iPhone and they're thrilled. They don't care how it works. They don't know how it works. It makes magic waves, (laughs) the the waves that come out of your mouth transduce into magical electronic waves that move through space and satellites and come down somewhere else into somebody else's ear. Or they turn the key in their car and it starts or that you know take a pill every morning because their doctor says so and that technology doesn't face them at all right so what is it about food that creeps
2: people out oh that's a great question (laughs) it really is and and it's not just you know that's one thing that's kind of shaken out right is it's 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 a lot of things you know it's concerns about technology and 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 like you said specifically with food right because you know, one thing that we've kind of learned from this recent research we've been doing, you know, is we know, like, for instance, GMOs haven't really been tied to healthcare, but we know that it's, you know, been used in healthcare, right? For like producing insulin. But it, it, you know, it's not really on the top of mind of the public in that area. What is, of course, like we talked about is food. And so, you know, obviously, I mean, we individuals have close connections to food, right? We make a lot of decisions about them. It has to do with our human health, right? But then, like I said, there's layers beyond that, right? So like things like concerns about a company controlling the food supply or owning, you know, having a patent on, you know, something that they see as a a living, right? And so you're, you're right, consumers are funny in the way that it, it, it's it's a lot of different things. And if you ask, you know, 10 different people, why, you know, who say they're averse to GMOs, if you ask 10 different people, why you might get 10 different answers.
1: I think I have a hypothesis on this too. And that if you are a big fan of Dan Kahneman and how he talks about the system one system Two thinking uh, that the emotional side of your brain is the one that responds to things like messages about food, that uh, we think about the cultural aspects and the social aspects and the feelings that we have around food. You know, you say, what do you feel like eating? Not what nutrition are you lacking? And so there's an emotional side to this. Whereas with medicine, it's very much a cognitive thing. You're looking for a solution to a problem that you're having. And so, you know, insulin coming through recombinant DNA, nobody cares. It, It doesn't seem to matter. And so that's my hypothesis. I don't know if that makes any sense.
2: It it does well. And, and you're, and you're right about the emotion. For instance, there's some researchers at the university of Toronto who have a paper and, and they looked at people who they called absolute moral opponents. Essentially say, you know, they're, they're essentially a group of consumers of the public who, you know, no matter how high the benefits are, no matter how low the costs are, they are just unsupportive of the technology, right? And so they termed them, I think as like moral absolutists. But what they found was that that group was more likely to be disgusted by the technology. So, it was, you know, so all that to say it's, it was in some motion, right? The, the people that were just completely against the technology were more likely to have an emotional response to the technology as well. And, and if you look at some of the communication that comes out from opponents of the technology, it's usually, you know, it's, it's, it's usually memes or you know images that they've made that really invoke disgust and so one you know i think you're absolutely right that there's an emotional component there and 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 it's emotional and this and this perceived risk that they really don't understand or can control and and you know to build on that you know example of asking people why they don't eat it you know i know there was a video some years back about gmos i think it was a jimmy kennel's Kimmel skit where they you know do the man on the street and ask people questions and they went to a farmer's market and asked people if they eat GMOs and they said no and they asked why and you know several people said I don't know yeah I just know I'm supposed to avoid it yeah no that's exactly it it it, it's been made to be a a a negative
1: technology and there came up you know and the reasons for that are many and maybe a great topic for another podcast but we know where we got how we got to that. We know that it was a communications foible on, on the part of many companies that were promoting the technology that ignored the consumer. And so we try to rephrase this around gene editing to get it right. So we're speaking with Dr. Brandon McFadden at the University of Delaware. This is a Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking about consumer attitudes towards gene editing. This is Collaborus Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.
1: And now we're back on Collabro's Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Brandon McFadden. He's an associate professor at the University of Delaware and an ag economist. And Brandon and I have been working together for a few years now on answering some questions about genetic engineering, but mostly now in the area of gene editing. But more importantly, how do consumers feel about it? Because if we understand how consumers feel about a new technology, The messaging around it can be better crafted. And so whether you're the company that's producing the gene edited seeds or a government in charge with regulating them or a consumer who just is concerned about their food, it helps us communicate to those groups and and from those groups to accurately give information to consumers. So in the recent work, you did some survey work. So could you tell us a little bit about the surveys, maybe where they were held and who was actually surveyed?
2: Yeah, sure. So yeah, this project that we're working on, it's several collaborators, Joy Rumble, Dr. Joy Rumble from Ohio State, sorry, the Ohio State University, Katie Stoffer, Dr. Katie Stoffer from the University of Florida and Kevin also at the University of Florida. And we started this project. It, it began with focus groups. And so Dr. Dr. Rumble was in charge of writing these interviewer, you know, the, the interviewer guidelines for this. This was kind of her baby on the project. But the, the thing that was really interesting that popped out from these focus groups and when we, we conducted these focus groups and one in each census region. So there was one in Philadelphia, one in Dallas, one in Columbus, Ohio, and then one in San Francisco. The really interesting thing that kind of came out of that for me was the first, was, you know, just the first question after essentially introductions was, you know, what, what are your thoughts about gene editing and. By and large, at every location, the first thing that came out of participants' mouths were it was about the medical side of gene editing and thoughts about that. And and, and food would you know they would move on to food at some point, but there was generally a, a focus first on healthcare, health, and medical applications, and then also more of a discussion around that than food. So, you know, we kind of found that very interesting because as, as I you know said earlier, that wasn't necessarily the case for GMOs, even though there, you know, could be health or, or, or food applications, you know, there's much more of a focus in the public's mind on food, but we're not finding that with gene editing. And so the focus groups, you know, and since then we've done subsequent surveys to try to understand more about how to communicate to the public and, and how really more is we're trying to figure out how the commute the public would prefer to be communicated with about these types of issues. And, and so that's kind of what we're focusing on now. And we've done some stuff also around this new labeling of this occurring and what it might mean for gene editing for consumers. I guess so the thing I think about is where
1: did they get these sentiments? Because when I, when, when I was, I went to one of the focus groups, I think Philadelphia, and I could not believe the answers that i was hearing it was completely different than what i would have anticipated and i I just remember the whole time almost laughing all the way through because the answers were totally different where where are people getting this is you know was my big question and so where are people hearing about gene editing associated with human health if they're not listening to this podcast
2: you know that's a great question and and one way you know so that. We we've published a, a paper in GM crops and food, the journal GM crops and food about about this question and and that came from the focus groups, and and one and one thing we say in that paper is you know so how could that happen? Well, you know that there was a there was a a researcher in China who who I think it was t- was it just one child or was it twins? I can't recall twins. Twins and and i believe what he did was he gene edited them to be immune to hiv i think that's right
1: yeah he he edited out the ccr5 receptor which is the cellular receptor that allows docking and entry of hiv so these two twins upon birth are immune to hiv
2: yeah and he made this announcement on youtube so he's like, he made a YouTube video, you know, about this project and what he did and released it to the public. And, you know, so one thing we did real quick was just look at like Google search terms, right. For gene editing, what you see is it's never been higher than after that video. So, you know, I think that's part of it is that was the kind of the public's introduction to gene editing in a way, because it, it took off in news stories, you know, and everything else. And then, you know, this thought of. You know, genetically engineering people—you know—caught caught a hold in, and and we found that too, right? And the focus groups, like in general, people were were positive about it in a lot of in a lot of aspects, right? The ability to cure diseases and the ability to prevent diseases, but then the conversations did often then go to, but I don't want, you know, people to have the ability to make their kids taller or have, you know, a certain eye color, and so, you know, it it, it progressed quickly from, you know concerns about disease to concerns about designer children. Kind of moving from therapeutic to
1: enhancement. Yep, that's right. And that's always been something that, that has been batted around. And the funny part is, is I was doing another podcast. I do the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast every Friday with Cameron English. And we talked about gene editing and gene editing ethics. And I said, you know, come to think of it. Would it be the worst thing in the world to live in a world of smart, beautiful people,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, I mean, there, there are real, like, you know, so I'll give you an example, like this close to home for us. We, we have a couple friend, right? So they, the, the husband's mom passed away from Huntington's disease. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like they've started a foundation and they are helping to fund the genetic research for parents. To see if they're likely to pass it on, and if so, then they're helping fund the IVF because they can. You know, their their thought is we can try to you know, we can remove this disease if we can think about how how who's who has the ability to pass it on, and if so, how we can get around that, right? And so we we there's a lot because of the techno the innovation and technology we're now seeing ways that we can identify diseases and, 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 and take them, you know, out of the population. And I think that's very attractive to people. So, you know, cause we've all got a family member or a loved one at some point that has had a terrible disease, right? And so I, I, th- I think that just hits. And again, so that, that becomes an emotional issue, right? We don't want our loved ones to have to go through these things. And so I think that really drives home, you know in a positive way for, for the public.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting how we think of that because I'm like you. I think of that and I go, "This is a really great move because if we do this, we can remove those genetics from the population." But if you listen to the last part of that sentence, (laughs) we can remove these genetics from the population. You start starting to sound, you know, like a little eugenics there. Yeah, you know, and and we're trying to make decisions about what genetic variations in the human gene pool we want to keep in the human gene pool and it i can see how that gets people a little bit nervous But at the same time when you're talking about huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis or you know whatever you you start to get to the point where you can pick out you can identify these rare genetic variants and then and i did a podcast on this a few months ago gosh her name escapes me but she was brilliant she was a a modern genetic counselor who uses genomics of uh, parents to make predictions about the children and can counsel them on, p- on potential problems they may have going forward or, or, or other dis- may inform other decisions, parents to be may make. And so this is, this is where we are with this new frontier and some folks really get nervous about it, but in this focus group, I couldn't believe how many people were excited about the, at least the positive side of this.
2: No, you know, I think that's a great point, you know, a concern about how the technology is used and, you know, this is something I grapple with a lot as a social scientist, you know, like even in the behavioral stuff I do, that's even about food choice, right? Like the behavioral stuff, the way I look at it, the behavioral economics, it's, it's almost a way of like using marketing concepts to, to, and and instead of using marketing concepts to like, you know, increase the profit for a firm, a market share for a firm. It's to increase the welfare of society. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So like a study that like looks at, and public schools, if, if they, you know, if the uh, consumption of chocolate milk is too high and therefore, you know, consumption of, of added sugars is too high you know, like a behavioral study finds that, oh, if you just put, you know, uh, the regular standard milk, that's not chocolate in the front, people are more likely to grab it, students are more likely to grab it than if you put the chocolate milk in the front, right? It's just more convenient, right? And, and again, this is something that marketers have known forever, right? You go to the cash register, there are lots of convenient purchases for you there, right? And so, so we kind of know these human behavior, you know, they're likely to occur, and so it's using it to say, well, something's got to go in the front of that milk case, right? Something's got to be there. So you might as well put the healthier option in front, right? So. That's an example of like, well, something's got to go there anyway. So we might as well use some research behavioral research to nudge people in the direction that makes, you know, choices best. But, but so that, you know, all that in general makes me a little nervous, right? Not even just this eugenics piece that, you know, we kind of have, you know, we have this responsibility, but, but, you know, that's the issue with any technology, right? What I often say when this type of stuff comes up is like you're, it's kind of, it's really a subjective question, right? It's, 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 is it good or bad? So is the internet good or bad, right? Well, it can be used for great things. It can be used for terrible things. And so, and and that's where I get the concerns about eugenics, but, and this is where, you know, this technology is a little different than others is, I don't think there's as much under, I think there's a lot more weight put on the bad things that could happen rather than the good things.
1: Now, I agree a thousand percent. And the worst part is the good things are amazing. And when you're looking at right now, people walking the face of this earth who have been cured from sickle cell disease, this is a such a powerful technology that can do good that it is a moral imperative to use. I, I, I would say it would be unethical to not use it because you have the ability to do something good. Even though there's some level of risk, of course, there's always some level of risk, you can't have no risk. The good outweighs the bad so much that you have to do it. And so it, it's, it makes this a really interesting question going forward for ethicists. But more importantly, I think it means that we need to be better at not just training students to be good scientists, but to be good people and to be excited about making good decisions that will help humanity maybe what it means is that we're turning into a, you know, I hate to say it again, that we're trying to develop a community of people who care about each other and want to use good technology to get there. I don't know if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, I, I think it does. And, and, and I agree with you. But, you know, and I think that's, the, I think a lot of people do public research and things like this because they are interested in the social good, right? Because you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but if you're in academia, often you could get, there's more lucrative opportunities out there often, but I feel like a lot of people go into academia and public research because they want to do good, right? And, 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 you know, this brings about really another talking point that maybe we should explain too, is that at least in food thus far with things like GMOs, the regular regulatory burdens, so like earlier I talked about the public concern about control of the food supply, things like that. So what that also somewhat means, right, is the public would prefer that institutions, public research institutions own this type of technology. And the case is that a lot of it's often started or, you know, the concepts are in the public domain, but they have to move to a private company at some point to get through the regulatory bur- regulatory burdens, because they are so costly. And so, you know, that's a whole nother issue, but, but all that to say is I, I agree with you that I agree with you that we we need to probably start doing some, maybe, you know, what it historically has maybe been thought of as like leadership type training and do more, you know, maybe think about like some integrity type training, but, but I also take your point about not wanting it to feel too much like a religion, you know, cause I, I that's so that's often a tongue in cheek statement that I make that sometimes I do even in academia right i I feel like sometimes i was I was raised in a, a church a, as a kid, and I kind of left that because of actually some of the behavioral issues that I saw, like in-group think and self-serving bias. These are the things I think by and large it actually got me very interested in just studying social interactions and And sometimes I do worry, like, do, did I trade one religion for another and the new one be in academia? Right. And we don't want it to be like (laughs) that. And, you know, and I mean this, like even things like, you know, if, you know, researchers who are really into environmental research, right. Like, or whatever it is, at some point you can start feeling like there seems to be some motivated reasoning going on here. Right. Like, it's not just a search for truth. It doesn't feel like sometimes like it seems to be a little motivated in the reasoning. And so, I mean, that's something. It, it that's something I also worry about.
1: Yeah. I guess the good ones though, do check themselves against that. I think that oh, that's absolutely. the, no, you know, no. that's the beauty of that. And, no. and
2: yeah, I, I get where you're going though. No. And that's what I'm saying is like, how, how, how do you get academics better at interacting, engaging with the public about the science? But this is, this is the difficult thing too, is because often academics aren't necessarily the best communicators. But talking about it in a way that is meeting people where they're at and instead of more of saying, right, this is, you know, this has come down on high from on high. And so therefore you must believe it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, but that's the way we've done it for all these years. Right. Yeah. And that's the way, I mean, I had one colleague who I saw stand in front of a room full of people talk about this very subject. And when asked, well, how do you communicate this to the public? His quotation was. If they're too stupid to understand it, then that's their problem.
2: (laughs) And that, and that, and that's the issue is at some level, it starts to feel like it's just a way for someone to look down their nose at someone else. Right. It's, it's, that's right. I've got the more, you know, I've got, I've got the intellectual uh, superiority, and 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 you're and you're right, and that's what we're is particularly with this project that we were talking about earlier that we're we're trying not to do, and and we it's more about meeting people where they are. You know, it doesn't matter who I talk to and how crazy their beliefs are, you know, crazy subjectively to me. In general, everybody's got the same goals. Everybody wants to be a positive contribution to society. They are concerned about their families. They are concerned about their loved ones. They, you know, concerned about their pets, right? Their health. Their health. Well, you know, their, you know, so. Community, yeah. The goals are, in general, all of our goals are the same. There are a lot of things that go on that put people in different places in life. And so, yeah, we've got to start communicating science in a way that's meeting people where they are rather than communicating to them as as though they're already at where we want them to be. Sounds exactly like like a good plan. And when when we
1: do want to communicate with people, what is the best way to be doing that? I mean, is is there any real prescription that we've learned that we could tell people in our field or scientists, scientists maybe listening? Here's some tip that maybe would be a good way for you to connect better.
2: Yeah. Well, so one thing I really was just describing is that generally. We have very similar values in life. Even if someone disagrees with you about a topic, they might even, so for instance, take something like food. In general, people want food to be available for others. They want prices to be low, right? So, so, you know, thinking about like they have that goal, right? But then there might also be this other thing about, well, we should avoid GMOs, right? So I think one, trying to connect on those big values and say, you know, well, let's think about how our values are similar. And we both want people to be able to afford food and have food available. And, and this is, you know, something that's been talked about for a while, right? Connecting on values and trying to understand really the person you're communicating to again, meeting them where they're at, understanding what's important to them and where their values, right. Right. And, and trying to connect how, whatever the technology is might be beneficial to those values. You know some other things that have been talked about, and we've tested some of this, or things like a narrative. So, for instance, like with gene editing, um, and and particularly specifically to citrus greening, which Kevin, do you want to give a little background on citrus greening?
1: I can give a little bit, yeah. So, citrus is infected since 2005 by bacteria that's spread by an insect, and it causes a, a one way decline in that in general. I mean, there's some unusual cases where they've reversed it, but, or whatever, but in general, this is a one-way trip and it's caused a 50% decline in citrus production in Florida. It's now been detected in uh, Texas, Arizona, Florida, um, and California. And so what it really means is less and less orange juice or fewer oranges and higher prices. So that's
2: citrus greening in a nutshell. That's right. And, and so the big concern, you know, at the beginning too, the, the spread was incredible. Like at one point it was 90% of something of the acreage in Florida. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And so there were real concerns that, Hey, we're not going to have any essentially citrus production in the U S possibly if we don't figure this out. So not even like to, to what Kevin said, higher prices, things like that, but also like imagine that we no longer have domestic production of something, right? And so in this study, we just showed this clip from CBS that a news story about this, right. That was really, we, we, we describe as a narrative. So narrative being kind of telling a story, right. And, and it told the story and it showed farmers and what they were going through and how devastating it was. And it made this, you know, it made this very salient that, Hey, this is a bad thing, this disease. And, and it might re- literally wipe out the citrus production in the U S now communication like that's very effective. Right, in the sense that people, you know, stories matter. Stories, right, or connect with people. But not only that, but it's not just describing, "Hey, it's got this technology that can stop this disease." It's giving people some context, right, of why it's needed. And that, and that's the thing that's going to be missing from, you know, food, labeling of food, kind of, you know, perceptions of it currently is, you know, just kind of been told it's bad. But there's been no context on like why it's needed, right, and so. Describing the the problem and why the solution is needed is a, is a good way to communicate as well. But in, in general, I would say, you know, kind of the big things that have been put forth recently, or, you know, over the past five years have been things like connecting on values, using narratives. And, and to me, when I hear both of those things, I hear, I hear meeting people where they're at and I hear giving people context, right?
1: that's it i mean we talk about this a lot in my training sessions that we talk a lot about you know the common values and common ideas but really what it boils down to is find the unifying uh, information the places where you agree and how this technology can help solve big problems we all care about and that's been if you go back through the talking biotech podcast i start every podcast with tell me about the problem and this one we didn't because it's a little bit different but And most of them, it's, you know, let's describe a problem to solve, and then let's come up with technology to solve it. And when you introduce it that way, you're not doing something because it makes a company more money or because it, you know, has the primary goal or increases something for farmers. You're solving something that people care about. And so as we communicate this to other people around gene editing, it's important for us to do that. You know, here's the problem that we need to solve, and here's how gene editing can help us do it. And I really think that that those are kind of the you know magical show notes here that will help us all be better communicators based on this kind of research.
2: Though you said earlier, like that the companies were bad at communicating to the end consumer. You know what you were just saying, it made me think about and and you know providing people more context is that's part of the issue. Is that is that they weren't the end, they weren't really the consumer for the companies that were selling the technology, firms that pr- produce you know, GMO seed were very good at communicating to the growers and the growers understood the benefit. And that's why we see, you know, high, high proportions of, of acres of, for things like corn, soy, and cotton planted to GMO varieties is because, you know, producers have challenges and this technology solves those challenges where the communication broke down to us, you know, to the food consumer, right? So that, that. That information was very salient to the producers. And that's, you know, we've seen wide, wide adoption. And and the issue is like, you know, you mentioned earlier, we might use iPhones and not know how it works, but we don't necessarily care. And that's the issue with food that is difficult for somebody to wrap their mind around is because you eat food, you know, three times a day, you know, every day. And so this is a, a, a decision that's made very often yet only about like 2% of the population are, are involved with agricultural production. So there's a a big disconnect, right. Between like kind of the, the challenges of food, the, you know, food produce or ag producers are facing farmers and, and what the food consumer is facing. Right. And, and there, and there's the, the communication needs to close that gap. That's a really good point to go out
1: on. It's, it's about closing that gap and about trying to help consumers understand where it is based upon values-based discussions that all of us should be engaging as scientists. So, you know, Brandon, you know, thank you very much for joining me today. And if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find On Twitter, at McFadden Ag Econ. Yeah, so it's M-C-F-A-D-D-E-N Ag Econ.
2: That's it. Uh, Well, you know,
1: Brandon, well, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And as time goes on, let's do this again, because it's really important for the listenership here to understand what we're learning about consumers and what they really care about.
2: Absolutely. This is a lot of fun, Kevin. Thanks.
1: And for everybody listening, thank you again for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. If you haven't noticed, if you go to iTunes and you look at the top podcasts in the life sciences, we're up there. That means... The Talking Biotech podcast, but you as the listener are making that happen. And if you imagine that these other podcasts that surround Talking Biotech in that list are like from NPR and the American Psychological Society, they have professional producers and professional hosts (laughs) that actually do this work. And because of a loyal listenership, we are being heard by many voices, many years. We're, We're creating voices being heard by many years. And why that's so good is that the higher we rank in iTunes, the more people that will listen. And the more people will share this content. So if you could do me a big favor and share this with someone you know, if everybody that listens gets one more person to listen, we can uh, really do some very positive damage in the iTunes charts. Uh, Give NPR a run for its money. So thank you very much for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.